HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. It's time for lunch. Welcome to Time for Lunch. This is a place to learn about eating, cooking, enjoying, and sometimes playing with your food. Each episode, we cover a new subject. I'm Hannah Forden. And I'm Harry Rosenblum. Tune in for food, fun, and flavor. We have a special guest here for lunch today, and it's up to you to guess who they are and what the theme of today's episode is. Are you ready? What shape are you? I can come in a lot of different shapes, depending on my specific job. And are you grown or made? I'm made. What are you made out of? I'm almost always made of metal, but once in a while you might see me made from wood or bone or even ceramic. Wow, cool. And where can I find you? In the hand of a chef or a cook. I'm often stored in a block or on a magnet. Ooh, I think I have an idea. What's one word that you would use to describe yourself? Sharp. Ah, you're a knife. Hannah, do you remember the first time you used a knife in the kitchen? Hmm, I'm trying to think. I don't know if I remember the specific first time I used a knife, but my mom, who used to cook professionally, she was really, really good about teaching me from a young age, how to use a knife safely, which is something we're going to talk about in this episode. So she made sure that I was always cutting away from my body and chopping things using the claw technique, which protects your fingertips. So I mostly remember learning how to be careful and protect myself. How about you? Being careful in the kitchen is so important. I remember when I got my first pocket knife. It felt like my parents trusted me to have something that seemed both dangerous and useful at the same time. And I definitely remember the first time I got a cut from a knife. You know, in some cultures, they say that a knife is truly yours when you get cut by it. Yeah, that feels true. And tell me, Harry, so having a sharp knife in the kitchen is actually better than having a dull knife, right? 
Yes, most of the time that's true. A sharp blade isn't necessary on a butter knife for spreading soft butter or cream cheese, but in the kitchen or on the trail, making sure your knives are sharp is super important. If you get cut with a sharp knife, it's much easier to heal because it will be a clean cut. A dull blade causes you to have to use more force and you can more easily lose control of the knife, and that's when you get hurt. That has definitely happened to me and resulted in some finger stitches. So knife skills and training are super duper important. And if you want to learn more about using a knife at home, you should ask your parents or your favorite grown-up for help and guidance before you try anything on your own. Moxie and Frank have been learning the proper way to hold and use knives since they were about four years old. And now it's so awesome because they help make dinner. That's so cool. What do you call a mechanical knife? Cutting edge technology. What happened when the knife went for a drive? It took a sharp turn. Now it's time for our question of the day. The answer to this question is somewhere in the episode, so listen carefully. What is the most expensive knife ever sold? Ooh, keep an ear out for the answer. Harry, there are so many knives. Where do we even start to talk about them? Well, listeners may not know this, but I work for the oldest knife company in the world. It's called Kikuichi, and it was founded in Japan more than 750 years ago. Wow, that is a really long time ago. The family started out as sword makers, and only in the last 150 years have they switched to focus on kitchen knives, but there are so many different kinds of knives, from table knives for eating and spreading butter and jam, to pocket knives that fold and Swiss army knives that have lots of tools that aren't only blades. And then there are hunting knives and fishing knives and harvesting knives and leather knives and paper knives and electrician's knives, just to name a few. Yeah, wow. I think... Maybe we should focus this show on kitchen knives because, you know, lunch. For sure. I called a few friends who make knives to talk about what makes a great knife and how knives are made. My name is Adam Simha, and I am a designer and maker of culinary knives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Adam's knife company is called MKS Knives, and his work is beautiful and functional. I'm lucky enough to have one of his chef's knives, and it's fantastic. A culinary knife is a knife that's used primarily to prepare food, and that would be different from a knife that would be used for something like cutting paper boxes or uh, hunting or fishing or farming. It needs to make the job of preparing food easy and, I hope, fun, and it needs to be able to do that potentially for a long period of time without making the person who's doing the food preparation tired or to make their hand hurt. So it should feel comfortable, it should start out sharp, and it should stay sharp, and it shouldn't be so delicate that it breaks, but it shouldn't be so heavy like an axe that it's difficult to use. Most of what I design are custom knives for individual people. So I will take into account where the person is working, like how tall their countertop is and how big their countertop is. So something as simple as having a really small counter might mean that we have to make a small knife. So Adam can customize the knife for the person he's making it for. 
It's really cool and sometimes quite a challenge. I had to make a knife that was meant for cutting ice. And not only cutting ice, but cutting ice in a bunch of different ways. So it had to be able to split a 60-pound block of ice in half. And that involved having the knife get hit with a hammer. And then it had to be able to continue to divide those split pieces of ice into small cubes. It had to be able to shave the cubes, to adjust them slightly so they'd fit in glasses. And it also had to be able to smash them into rubble if it was used in a different way. This all without breaking, and it was definitely going to be left wet so it couldn't rust. So that involved picking the right material, picking the right heat treat, testing it brutally, um, and then picking the right geometry. And over the course of a couple of iterations, I ended up tuning it so that it worked really pretty amazingly well. That's asking quite a lot from one little old knife. I recommend starting as young as you feel comfortable. And there are some knives out there, they're called children's knives, and they have rounded tips and offset handles. So they're very easy to use and they're relatively safe, although they do have sharp edge. Teaching kids basic knife skills, in a way, I think it's fairly easy because they're really absolutes. You just never do this. You always do that. And once you get in the habit, that's just the way you do it. It's like you wouldn't brush your teeth by putting a toothbrush up your nose. Yeah, I would just say invite kids to be part of making meals and understand that a, a little practice goes a long way and that it's really gratifying and fun. I love that analogy. There's a correct tool and a way to do things in the kitchen. So don't put your toothbrush up your nose and use your knife carefully. My name's Mariah Coles. I'm the owner of Orchard Steel and uh, we're a company that makes kitchen knives. Mariah makes knives in Vermont where her family also has an orchard. She makes her knives by hand, one by one, and I knew she could tell us a lot about how a knife is made. So the process of making knives, there's a couple different ways to do it. So the way I, I make knives is I first get a bar of steel and I put it into a forge, which is essentially a really hot oven, and it gets the steel to be about 1,500 to 2,000 degrees, which is really, really hot. So the steel gets red, orange, hot. And then I take a hammer and an anvil and I hammer the bar of steel into the shape of a knife. So I, and I have to put it in the oven and then pull it out really quickly and hammer it as fast as I can until it's no longer orange. And then I put it back in the oven, I heat it back up again, and then I pull it back out and hammer it. So I have to do that several times, probably, I don't know, 10 times or so. And then once I've hammered the knife into shape, I bring the knife into my grinding room and I have these belt sanders that are very powerful and I can put different grades of sandpaper on them. So I start out with a sandpaper that has really big sand on it and it's really rough. And I grind the finish, the shape of the knife. So I've forge the shape of the knife the best I can, but it's not perfect. So I finish the shape of the knife, which is what I call profiling the knife. Once the knife is profiled, then I drill holes into the handle of the knife so that I can put pins to keep the handle on later. And then I bring the knife over to my heat treat oven and I heat treat the knife. It's a process of heating and cooling that makes the knife steel really hard. And then when I'm done heat treating, I bring it back into the grinding room and I 
grind the bevel into the knife, which basically creates an edge. And then I sharpen the knives and I put my name on them. The handles that I make on my knives are basically like an ice cream sandwich. So there's like the wood and then the knife steel and then another piece of wood. And then I put two pins in the handle where I've drilled holes, both in the wood and in the steel. And they act almost as like a toothpick in a sandwich, holding everything together. And I glue them all together and I have to wait for two days for the epoxy, which is a type of really strong glue to cure. Once it's totally hardened, then I bring the knives into my grinding room one more time and I use special sandpaper for wood. So I smooth out the handles and clean them up and make them really smooth to the touch. And I shape them to the shape that feels really good in your hand. I really love forging the knives. I love picking out the handle pieces because the handle wood gives the knife its character. Whether I'm using a dark walnut wood or a curly maple or a piece of apple wood from my family farm, it gives the knife its personality, which is really fun to choose. Thank you, Mariah and Adam, for sharing so much about knives. We really appreciate it. Listeners, we're going to take a quick break and be back with more fun facts about the sharpest tools in your kitchen. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I'm able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected. And I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com. Welcome back to Time for Lunch. The knife was one of the earliest inventions. Archaeologists have discovered sharpened blades dating back almost 2.6 million years. You know, every ancient or modern civilization has used a knife of some variation. In ancient Egypt, knives were often depicted as magical. In fact, when archaeologists found Egyptian pharaoh King Tutankhamun's burial chamber, they discovered a knife that is thought to have been made from a meteor that was buried with him. Hey, Harry, have you ever cried while cutting onions? Every time. The sharper the knife, the less cell damage is done to the onions, and that means less irritants are released into the air, making your eyes run. Native Americans used a variety of materials to make knives. Some of the most popular were made of bone, antlers, or stone. The gem of the Orient is the most expensive knife ever sold. It cost $1 million and is encrusted with 153 emeralds and five diamonds. The pen knife, which is a small form of folding pocket knife, was named after its primary function at the time of its creation, sharpening the tip of a quill, which is an old-fashioned pen made from a feather. I think it's time to cut to a dance break. Get it? Hardy har har. 
Hi, I'm Taylor. I'm the owner and co-founder of The Brooklyn Kitchen. I'm going to tell you how to cut onions. First, you need a really sharp knife. And then, because it's a round object, you want to stop it from rolling around on the cutting board. And the thing that you do first is cut it in half. Now, this is hard. You have to grab it on two sides of the onion around the top and then slice your knife between your fingers down through the middle of the onion. You can cut it pole to pole, which means from the root to the shoot end, so the top to the bottom, holding it firmly with your hands and making sure not to put your fingers in the way. You slice with your knife from the pole to the pole, from the north pole to the south pole, following the ribs of the onion. And then we have these little half moons of onion. Caramelizing onions is a big lesson in patience. Everybody's instinct when they have stuff on the stove is to just stir, 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 stir. But in this case, you want to stir exactly three times over the course of the cooking of the onions, which may take an hour. When you first put it into the pan, you stir it all up to get the oil all covering all the onions. And then you leave it alone. You leave it completely alone. Despite all of your urges and all of your desires to stir those onions, leave it alone. And by not moving them at all, the onions that are on the way, way bottom of the pan that are the hottest are going to cook down a lot faster. And then the onions that are at the top of the pan, further away from the heat, are going to steam. And so these onions will have slightly different textures when we're done cooking them. So the next big stir happens when, uh, when the onions have cooked down and you kind of just take your tongs a little bit and peek in the middle and see if it's starting to, to turn brown on the bottom. So you stir up the onions. This is when you stir up the onions completely and fully and totally stir them up and get them all mixed around so everything looks exactly the same. You stir them all around so everything is evenly coated. And then what do you do? You leave it alone. We wanna cook off the water in the juices so that all the sugars remain and concentrate and become caramel. It's like candy. So all of the juices around the onions are consolidating. You leave it alone until it starts to look syrupy and bubbly and slow bubbles are forming and it's like blub blub. Then you mix it all up and it's delicious. I put it on toast, I put it on eggs. I can add liquid to it and make it into soup. That's caramelized onions, baby. So Hannah, we've been doing this segment towards the end of the episodes where we talk about something good that happened to us or something that made us smile this week. What do you got? Hmm, yeah, I think this is one of my favorite parts of the episode. It's always good to reflect on good things, especially since a lot of us have been having a tricky year. Um, this week, my bright spot is I actually moved into a new house this week, and it has been really lovely. I moved from a little apartment in Brooklyn, New York, to the country in the Hudson Valley, and getting to see the sunrise, getting to see Canada geese land in our backyard. I heard an owl last night when I went outside, and it's been just an absolute treat to be back in nature. And I'm really excited. How about you, Harry? 
Something that struck me this week is the generosity of other people. My daughter Moxie and I have been volunteering once a week at our local food pantry, and this past weekend we helped to distribute toys to families for kids for the holidays. Seeing the other people there helping and the people who were coming to pick up their toys and the smiles and wishing everybody happy holidays, it was a really nice way to remember the importance of human connection in this really weird year where we don't get to see people and that we're all having to keep more distant, but we can still connect with people and offer help if we can. So that made me smile. I love that. What a great family activity. Maybe listeners can look up places in their community where they can help to give back and help those who are less fortunate. At the beginning of the episode, we asked... Bean, that's not the question of the day. (laughs) What is the most expensive knife ever sold? And the answer is... The gem of the Orient cost $1 million and is encrusted with 153 emeralds and five diamonds. I just wanted to mention that our friends over at the Tumble Science Podcast for Kids just did an episode about the coronavirus vaccine. So if you're curious about it, it's a great listen. Thanks for listening to Time for Lunch. We'll be back next week with more tasty stories. This show is written, produced, edited, and hosted by Harry Rosenblum and Hannah Forden, with engineering by Liam Werner. Emily Kunkel is our associate producer. Music in this episode was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder, and our fun fact theme was created by our very own Liam Werner. Special thanks this week to Mariah Coles of Orchard Steel and Adam Simha of MKS Knives. Time for Lunch is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Time for Lunch is also a part of Kids Listen, the number one app for finding great podcasts for kids of all ages. You can learn more at kidslisten.org, and you can download the app from iTunes or the Google Play Store. Time for Lunch is powered by Simplecast. And remember to please stay in touch. Whether you have a joke you'd like to share or if you'd just like to tell us what you had for lunch, we love to hear from our listeners. Send us your recipes, poems, book or podcast recommendations, or anything else you think we'd like. It's super easy to record yourself using the Voice Memo app on an iPhone, or you can just send us a video. Ask your favorite grown-up to help you email us at timeforlunchpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to include your name, age, and address so we can send you a little something in return. Time for Lunch is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with City Council. Thanks for listening.